Hi, I'm Rich Wynn. And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the, the PropTech Growth Podcast. Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business. I'm the portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy. I'm Rich from Richwind Consultancy. I specialise in operations, sales and process, helping fintechs and PropTech companies to grow. So I had an unhealthy love for property for as long as I can remember. So I started as a property lawyer, worked in real estate in London and in New Zealand as a solicitor, and was also a property investor and landlord. And I guess my journey into PropTech started with a problem as many good businesses do. So I was renting a property in New Zealand when I was living there, also renting out property in London, and it struck me that the repairs process was fundamentally broken for everybody involved. I didn't know what the solution was, and I'll come to sort of solution finding in a moment, but wanted to solve the problem of repairs and then spent the last nine years trying to do that. So that was my journey into PropTech. In terms of working out how to solve the problem, I did what I advocate people do, which is follow the lean startup approach of knowing that the truth isn't in your head, the truth is out there. And I went out and spoke to lots of property managers, tenants, contractors, landlords, and through that process, iteratively came up with what a solution could look like before investing in building a technology solution, just trying to work out what the problems were and how they could all be solved for the betterment of everyone involved. Was that fixed flow that you started nine years ago or did it start out something else? Fixed flow was incorporated in 2012. Mid 2013, we got to the stage of having a beta and properly launched in 2014. And then the business kind of took off from there. Ended up exiting the business to Arian, which is the largest property management software business in Europe and a Advent International Portfolio Company in May 2021. And since then, I've been promoted a couple of times and now run all of their UK businesses. So it's an at scale organization and I get to work with some really smart people. That sounds amazing. Almost dream job like, to be honest, from what you're saying. It's absolutely fantastic. I know as you went through Fixed Flow, you look to acquire other companies along the way to help you or partnerships and then acquisitions. How did you find that as something I assume you were relatively new to? Where did you see the value in those partnerships and then to make that an acquisition rather than just a partnership? So the acquisitions came after our exit to Arian because they've got the firepower to do the acquisitions, but partnerships always been a key part of the fixed flow approach. And I guess my approach to business, which is it's better to collaborate than compete. And um, I guess the world has changed quite a lot over the past, let's say, particularly last five years. So if you go back five years, most business systems didn't have APIs or ecosystems, or at least not publicly available ones. And I think that's fundamentally shifted in both the residential and commercial markets. But my approach, our approach, our philosophy was always, is there an opportunity to add more value to customers and their customers by working collaboratively with other people? So if what we provide and someone else provides can come together to deliver benefits that individually we can't, then it makes sense for us to join forces in some way to deliver that value. And FixFlow as an example has 40 plus integration partners. And the idea is that particularly as technology moves on at such a pace and consumer demands do too, it's really hard for a single provider to 
cover the entire stack of needs, particularly to a business. And custom software is definitely out as an approach to software development, simply because it's it causes internal problems for the customers in terms of managing change management, user acceptance testing, the whole process of what I'd describe as legacy technology. The way to get around that is to allow customers to build their own tech stacks. I'll give you an example. It'll be Salesforce, HubSpot, SalesLoft, et cetera, et cetera, stacking together to deliver what a SaaS business needs. And we took that approach in property technology, and I think it's pretty widely accepted as the approach as point solutions come to market to work collaboratively with other point solutions or core systems. What sort of advice would you give to somebody looking to start up today in a prop tech or a fintech or the way that you did it? Is that still the way that you advise is the best way to do it? Or would you look at things slightly differently? I'd say that it, it wasn't something unique that we did. We took pretty widely accepted B2B SaaS principles and applied them to the problem we were trying to solve. So whether it's, look at the titles now, the sales acceleration formula, there's the lean startup. There are so many great books and resources out there and newsletters like SASTA put out a great newsletter. I think it's every week. There are a huge number of resources, but I don't think you need to build your own playbook. B2B SaaS is well known. The nuance comes around industry knowledge. And I think the property sector, particularly residential, and to perhaps a slightly smaller degree because of internationalization commercial, is still a very network-driven sector. And so I think you have to immerse yourself deeply within the sector, not just as a go-to-market channel, but also to really understand the nuances of the sector you're serving so you can better deliver value to the customers. So I'd say for PropTech specifically, understanding the general SaaS principles and approaches, and I strongly encourage that people don't need to reinvent the wheel. People have been through this and scaled multi-billion dollar companies off the back of following those principles. Um, and then layering on the nuances of property. So for people outside the property sector, some of the nuances may seem odd and intuitive, but in part, they may be built up from legislative backgrounds and that's also changes between countries i've got quite a legal view of the world but i think that's really useful information that you get from immersing yourself in the sector i've been in b2b SaaS for my entire career and i've only been in prop tech since 2019 and that was the big learning curve for me was understanding the nuance of this specific industry and also bringing the B2B SaaS principles to a cohort of people who sometimes didn't think that they applied to them, but they do. <laughs> and it may be that property or real estate isn't unique in having its industry nuances. I suspect it isn't. So I've invested in a B2B SaaS business that works in the beauty sector, so providing booking and management software to hair salons and others. And I was speaking to one of the co-founders yesterday, and he was explaining some of the nuances of that sector. So I guess maybe you layer, you start with the foundation of general SaaS principles and you layer on the industry nuances, whether it's prop tech or anything else. I feel like I've learned so much in a short period of time just by listening to you that I'm like, I frantically want to scribble loads of stuff down, but I'm trying to look professional and just try and remember it, which I won't, but luckily this is recorded. I'll be going back over this later. I, I um, none of this is, I guess, I wouldn't even claim credit as any original thoughts having been shared. These are, I think, wealth of resources now available is phenomenal. And so whether you like consuming information through podcasts, webinars, books, newsletters, or in-person networking, there is a wealth of resources. And if you're an early stage founder and you're facing a problem, it is highly likely that somebody else has 
not only seen that problem, but solved that problem and explained their solution to the problem. You obviously, as a co-founder of a business, are going to forge your own path and you can obviously do what you want it. That's part of the joy of entrepreneurship. It's a creative endeavor, but I would say if you are facing something that you are struggling to solve, ask people, search for the answer, possibly frame it in as generic terms as possible so that you can get the learnings from other B2B SaaS verticals. And I found that in prop tech more than fintech, people are there to help you. I think it is quite a smaller community, especially around London and the Southeast is quite a small community, the big players, so to speak, within prop tech. And if I've had a question, I've reached out to somebody and, and they've answered it. People who I've reached out to, to get onto the podcast, who've never heard of me or Rebecca before, and why would they? Oh yeah, no, that'd be absolutely brilliant. It's sort of, you know, it just worked. And the more we've done it, the more people we've met, and then it just goes. And I think it is important for founders, and I've seen it a lot, unfortunately, where you're so stuck within the running of the business, even if there's just two of you, that you can't see, or you can't go back to those basic principles that would actually give you the answer of this is a B2B SaaS model sort of thing. And I see it so often, and that's why I wanted to highlight it. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. All that information is out there. Maybe before you set up, you haven't done enough market research. And so maybe you just need to stop, take a step back and go, actually, we're bringing in four grand a month. We're spending 50 grand a month, but we need to do that to get the tech. That's fine. But your runway is going to be cut to about six months and then you're going to go bust. And it's been very brutal about it. Just in general, that's what I see. And obviously my job is then to try and help them avoid that. But yeah, no, that is really interesting. And I think that's something that, that is overlooked, that it is a, not an age old model, but it is a model. It's a scalable model. You don't have to stick exactly to the guidelines, but stick around them and you're probably going to be all right. Uh, and you must have seen this as an investor in business and in your current work as well. People getting these sort of funding before it's run before you can walk and all that sort of stuff. How do you, when you're speaking to them or in your advisory capacity or whatever, say to them, just calm down. Do you say just calm down or do you just say run with it and see what happens? What's your sort of preferred? I think a lot of it depends on the business stage and the founding team. Some people need to be let loose and some people need to be held back. I think you've touched on really interesting points possibly for that. So the first is you talked about network. And so the property and property tech sector are very heavily network driven. The UK is an okay sized market. The prop tech market of people who make it through or achieve a scaling point on the curve is relatively small. And what I've seen is anybody who takes shortcuts on integrity gets quickly frozen out of the market. Just a cautionary tale. The second is the SaaS model. And I guess if you boil it right down, the reason that SaaS is beautiful is a repeatable, predictable revenue um, model but also you don't have the costs associated with custom software. And where I see some people get it wrong is they build customizations for individual customers rather than looking to develop the platform as a whole for the betterment of their community and customer base. And so that, that sort of destroys the SaaS model. The third is around the funding market. And I think if we were talking 18 months ago, if I was just put a rough date on it, I think the story would be very different in the time of cheap, almost free 
money everything was about growth and not raising money on advantageous terms was financially irresponsible for lots of people the world has changed and business fundamentals have come to the fore everything goes in cycles but i think um the last few years were the anomaly rather than where we're going to end up again so i think it's reasonably likely that business fundamentals will be required and the sort of outlandish hockey stick projected growth and the quadrants with no competitors on slide decks just won't be accepted anymore you have to have a route to profitability and even tech businesses again businesses that happen to do tech are valued on business fundamentals profits gross margin growth rates both at top and bottom line and i think it's taken a while for some founders to get their heads around the fact that the world has changed but it hasn't fully hit i think the earliest stage of the market so it came through the public markets down then we saw series d c b a seed and eventually down to pre-seed it's still filtering down so i don't think we're at the end of that reversion to business fundamentals as you were talking about it i was just um, going through in my head people that i've spoken to recently just one it affirms that i know what i'm talking about because i'm telling you to now this is 100 percent what i do i'm probably rajiv mark ii slightly better uh, obviously everyone should pay for my services but also i think i have seen a twist in mindset and i've been trying to push a twist in mindset to whether i work with the founders or not in that it it is now just down to how you can make your business a proper business rather than a fantasy let's do this you, you might see someone who's doing a tv series but you could get exactly the same result just as me and rebecca have shown by just starting up a podcast and trying to get your mates on and other people on and then grow like that we see when you start this december and we get like three thousand i think our best one's got which is steve rad has got about five thousand five hundred views and we've marketed it very little certainly no paid marketing uh, it has brought steve in some good business and again phil priest the last one that we did brought him in business already you get back down to what you need to do and where you can spend money and where you shouldn't marketing obviously you need to spend money on but you don't need to go all out like you can just get an iphone and spout some random nonsense which i usually do on linkedin i'm cutting that out you can't tell like... people the marketing they could do just about some nonsense on linkedin what am i chopped liver yes pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> i still need to teach you about sales it's something that's a lot more important than marketing rebecca tell me about um, it <laughs> uh, sorry i've gone way off point do you do any sort of mentoring or are you involved on that side of it or is it all everything's just you're so busy with what you're doing and that sort of thing that you you don't have quite have time so i've invested in i think eight to ten early stage businesses and where i have i try to help so i think the value is i don't profess to have any answers but i can happily and i will happily share my experience and some of the problems that i faced I might be able to add some value if people are facing the same problems. I was really lucky that I had some absolutely amazing advisors on my board and advisory boards as I scaled the business. And part of it, pay it forward. Part of it is I really enjoy it. I also work with some VCs and I particularly like to shout out episode one who are incredible and portfolio ventures and 
they really look to add value to every one of their portfolio companies through connecting them with their LP, so their investors, but also their wider networks. And that's why they're so great to work with. So that that's the way I tend to get involved. But I actually know the prop tech sector is quite small and it's not uncommon to get or to make a call for help. So I call other people who are further along on the journey and other people call me and that's part of being the ecosystem and helping the ecosystem move forward. Coming back to fixed flow, where do you see fixed flow going in the next five years? I am much less operationally involved in fixed flow than I was before, but I'm lucky that I've got a phenomenal management team in place. Um, I'll just give you an example. The UK chief of staff, Tom, joined Fixflow six years ago, roughly, in customer support, ran that team, joined product, ran that, became the COO, and is now effectively day-to-day running the operations of the business. Where I see the business going is increasingly um, software with a service, I think is the general headline trajectory. So we've provided tools to help our clients deliver better service to their clients, the landlords, in depending on terminology and sector, but also their customers, the, the tenants or residents. I think that through containerizing the process of service de- delivery, so in simple speak, providing really good vetted insured contractors for whatever is needed, and by plugging in great tools to help me fix, we can continue to deliver a better end-to-end solution, and that's the direction of travel. Etten has been telling us that he's going to send me and Rebecca a hoodie and I said to him, look, we need to get this for this date, which was today. I spoke to him yesterday and he was like, yeah, it'll be a couple of weeks. So I was like, yeah, let's get a couple of those across and we'll get you some free advertising. But yeah, Etten's brilliant. And again, from speaking to him on the podcast, the people that he's got around him, his his Etten-ness plus the people around him is making that become a really successful business. And I know he's looking in different sectors and stuff like that. And I think, I'm not just saying this, but if I had money on someone who's going to do really well in the next sort of two, three years, I think it's definitely him with the backing of Fixed Flow and, and everyone around him. And they all seem, all his investors seem to want to get involved and the board are all working with him now as, as well as doing their usual jobs. So just on Etel, I think he's a brilliant example. Quite a lot of people starting a business for the first time thinking that the power, the value is in the idea. To me, at that stage, the idea is interesting. It's really about the individual. And I guess touching on the point we made about funding earlier, the hustle, the infinite hustle that person has to make it a success. They may well start a business doing X and end up doing Y. The only common thread is that individual or group of individuals who've started the business. And so if investing at the earliest stages, whether time, money or both, it's really an investment in the humans rather than anything else. As the business grows, it's then a, an investment in idea market fit. So what's the total adjustable market? Is there a need to be solved? Then it's about product market fit. Then it's about a hypothesis about scaling. And then it's about a hypothesis about growing the addressable market through internationalization or going into other verticals. But right at the start, it's about the individual and all the way to the end, the individual underpins everything. So that that is, And if you're looking for the embodiment of hustle, it's that man. I think one of the fundamental uniting factors I've seen when speaking to a number of successful founders in the space, they all seem to have those business fundamentals right. They know, even if they don't know how to build a software platform, even if they're not 100% sure about what the problem is they're trying to solve, they understand how a business works, how to make it profitable, how to scale and grow 
and serve customers. They're all customer centric. They are all absolutely obsessed with their customers and their customers' customers. Yep. That is key. And every single successful startup that I've had the pleasure of working with has been obsessed with their own customers and how they help their customers serve their customers. That is the fundamental essence of what makes a successful B2B business, particularly in SaaS. And so many people just aren't quite grasping that. And I think it has a lot to do with what you said around the issues of free money and going a bit mad in that area. People have lost track of the business fundamentals, but those people who have it, they hustle and they know what to do and they adapt. And they they don't need very much money. So they can can choose to take money where it's true value add money. Um, They're able to keep control and to grow a profitable business to keep control of their own destiny. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the, again, I know we both keep saying we're speaking to these founders, but that is pretty much our job. And a lot of them are introverts. Can be difficult to talk to or until you build that relationship with them, which is five or six calls or meeting them and putting your arm around them and like creating physical touch so they know that you're not like trying to kill them and things like that getting i think one of the core skills is getting that person to become more like a steve rad or is another great example of a character who i know he has james as well who again is a great character and they've pushed inventory base forward a lot based on steve's hustle and his cleverness in how he's somehow got two companies into reach without them knowing and all that sort of stuff. Anyone who's met him knows he's a business genius and constantly thinking what is the next thing without. But again, like Rebecca was saying, he's thinking what helps my customer's customer. And then he can then build something with his genius brain on top of that. Whereas other people, it's, it's just really, you just want to shake them and just say, look, you've got a great, great product. Like you've got people who are interested. You've got people who are buying it just you know, get yourself out there a little bit more whether that's you doing a video on linkedin or just being at an event and not just talking about boring your solution as such have a proper conversation with people it's almost like they need a confidence coach or something around that which would actually then make their business more successful or make people like them more and want to invest are we losing some business because these introverts are really struggling to either make that decision as to what to do or who to bring in or, or where they are i think that's going to be an interesting one i really do business is a team game let's just start right right at the top at various stages of the business you need different skills attributes and by team game i don't just mean the employees or the founding team but it's also the advisors consultants shareholders directors, whatever they are around. So that that's your team and the team changes over time. And typically you see people move from generalist roles to specialist roles and it's about having revenue can support team growth. But the companies that I see do best have a mix of skills, typically into three buckets that I'll come back to in a moment, and they complement each other. So they each have their own areas of ownership, responsibility, their own swim lanes. And they challenge one another, they push one another, they support one another, they're critical friends to one another. But it is that mix of skills. So I think it's highly unlikely. I don't think I've come across anybody who 
does all three. Steve might be an exception, but so the three skill sets are you've got the the visionary. So the person with the deep sector knowledge who can articulate and understand the needs of the market now and in the future. And they tend to be quite product centric. You have the technologist, the person who's able to take that product vision and do that, do the how. So how are we going to deliver on it in a meaningful, sustainable, robust, scalable way? And then you have the hustler who is out there effectively educating the market on the problem that is being solved, collecting customer feedback, being a trusted advisor to the sector. And so you can have people wearing multiple hats. So you could have a CTPO, so Chief Technology and Product Officer. You may have someone who's the hustler and the product person, but all three of those bases really need to be covered. And then around that core, you have the compliance. So you need to be robust. You need to be trusted. That means having your legal documentation and your accountancy processes in place, and whether you have those skills internally or you have a good bank of advisors, and then you have the business strategy piece. Again, if it's not within the core competencies, buy in those skills. So whether with money through consultancy or equity or pay, whatever it is, get yourself those. But if you start with those three and you're in a big enough market, and you are determined to succeed. And by succeed, I mean, be willing, happily willing to invest 10 years of your time to change a sector, to make it better for everybody in there. You've got a reasonable shot of success. Sorry, I was just looking at you in complete awe, Raj. I was just, yeah. I, I believe just... the expression is nailed it. Again, I yeah. don't, I just, all of this stuff you can get from books. It's just about finding the right books or podcasts, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Question we often ask is if you did it again, or would you go founder or co-founder? What would be your preference? I think I, I know, but I'm going to not start a business by myself. So I am hyper aware of my limitations and the areas. So I am not the technologist. I can play the role of the product person, but I'm not a product specialist. And having worked with some exceptional people in those categories, if I started again, I know that the chances of success, by success, it's not just the finances, which are the byproduct of delivering the value to the customer. So the customer value created would be a lot better with some really good people in those spaces. That's my view. And I also think it's more fun going on the journey with other people. Maybe that's a personality thing. If you're the type of person who likes going on holiday by yourself, maybe saying they found it is more a thing for you. I think when I look at companies, a lot of what they miss out on is is sales at the end of the day. And I feel like everybody who believes in that company should be able to have enough about them to, if not create a full sale, have somebody interested enough to then pass on to the BDM or myself or someone like that. I feel that is what I would do. You need other people around you. And if it's not fun, why bother doing it? Yeah. There are loads of ways to earn money. What you're doing is changing the world and having fun along the way. And it is hard. And it is, I think, the sort of decade rule of thumb is probably about right. So think of your life in 10-year chunks. Do you want to spend the next 10 years of your life being lonely and having nobody who really understands the problem being based? Or are you going to share the problems and half the problems and solve them together and have fun along the way? One other bit of advice for early stage founders is be open to fractional resources, growing the business. So 
often at an early stage you can't afford a full-time seasoned finance director cmo hr director but you're going to face some pretty tricky challenges along the way and so there are some great resources out there collections of people and i would encourage you not just to think creatively again going back to the theme of hustling you have problems to solve in your business you may have enough work for a really good fd on a one day a week supported by a bookkeeper in-house or out-house um don't close your mind to getting the best possible available people the chances of success with a tech startup are astonishingly small but with the right team you start to skew the odds in your favor i completely agree and in fact one of the biggest issues i've seen in most of the startups i've worked with is that they've hired full-time junior or mid-tier staff instead of part-time senior staff and it doesn't matter what part of your c-suite you're looking at the number of times that i've seen people hire a junior coder developer marketing manager sales rep and they are working full-time for a very low salary and have no skills or experience but hey they'll learn on the job who are they learning from because you've got no senior people to coach them and then they go, oh, six months down the line, oh, we made a bad hire. Yeah, they weren't great. And I'm looking at the LinkedIn profile of this person and they've never worked in a startup before. They've never worked in B2B. They've never worked in SaaS. They've got six, 12, 18 months of business experience doing a bit of marketing, a bit of sales, a bit of this or that. And you wanted them to come into your business and help you grow. It's just not going to happen. So I think what you have to say about that is really important. Get the best help that you can get wherever you can get it and quite often like you say one day a week or even a few hours a week depending on what people have available could give you more value than a full-time person who doesn't know what they're doing yes and they have the playbooks so you aren't just buying the person you're buying the years of experience and of learning and of execution and of mistakes made on other people's dollars that's hugely valuable and i'm just going to shout him out by name guy hutchinson who runs the startup cfo was our fractional cfo and he got us all the way through he got us through funding rounds but he also got us through exit on a fractional basis and so i just encourage people to think creatively rather than being pigeonholed into the fte world i told somebody about this yesterday even if say for example you use rebecca one, one day a month and so for example, she's a grand for one day because it's based on her experience. It's still only 12 grand a year that you're spending. If you think about that compared to what you're going to get from a full-time employee, the return on investment on 12 grand with somebody who's got all that, yes, it's then up to you to either implement it yourself or have somebody implement it in order mm -hmm. for it to be worth some money. But actually, in the grand scheme of things, 12 grand is absolutely nothing. And you're more often than not, and I find it with my clients, probably to my detriment, I end up working for them more than my allotted time anyway, because you get invested in the company, invested in the people, and you want them to do well. So actually, probably ended up getting a lot more for your money than you would with someone else. So I, yeah, I think that's, that's yeah, 100%. I started working with a client a number of months ago now, and we won't name them. They were paying just over five grand a month for a PR agency, which is not an unusual amount to pay a PR agency, but they weren't seeing any results, no leads, nothing. 
And so I was like, if you paid me that money for one day a week of my time, I could actually work on your strategy and bring in some results because they had this idea in their head, oh, she's very expensive. But for me, one day a week was the same as paying this PR firm five grand a month. And within a couple of months, we had a marketing strategy in place that was customer centric. We had a content marketing strategy. We had an email marketing program. We had a LinkedIn advertising and promotion strategy all set up all being sent out automated so that the people working in that business had to invest hardly any time or effort whatsoever in the marketing program and it was generating leads. Yep. Nice. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's, There's no no promotion like self-promotion, isn't it, Rebecca? <laughs> but it's not just me. It's an FD. It's a, a CSO. It's whoever you need just bringing results driven and experience driven strategies to your business much more quickly and efficiently than anyone junior ever could and that's not to crap on junior employees junior employees are great they're great for executing but if you don't have a cohesive strategy to execute on they're just going to flounder it's a blend of skills and experience that you need and it keeps coming back to this is a team game you have different people if they you understand their roles and people can develop and change their roles over time just consider the problems you're trying to solve in the business and again i would start from the assumption that they have been faced and solved by other businesses so understand what they did reading the founders stories is really interesting autobiographies as well as their sort of harder business outputs it's really good when's your book coming out <laughs> I haven't really thought about that. Well, I uh, think you I've should. Got, I've got a lot to yeah. learn. So at some stage, maybe in a couple of businesses time, bluntly, I think the advice I've given isn't unique or particularly insightful, it's just built by experience and also from the advisors I had around me. And this is when you're choosing your advisory board or your early stage investors. This is the sort of thing that they should be helping you with. Thanks for joining us on the PropTech Growth Podcast. To learn more, you can find us on LinkedIn or email proptechpodcast at icloud.com. See you next time.